In this program, I want to talk about something called the bully pulpit. It's a term that Teddy Roosevelt came up with. Originally, it referred to an office or a position of power that allowed its occupier to have an outsized voice and to therefore wield influence over others. At the time, Roosevelt used bully the way people now use the word awesome. Today, though, the bully pulpit is actually wielded by bullies, and the pulpit is more often than not the megaphone of social media. I'll get back to that in a minute. This country is divided into two factions that apparently can't stand each other. Yet, when I ask what it is that one side finds so offensive about the other, the individuals that I ask can't answer the question without resorting to slogans and labels. Liberal, conservative, left, right, Democrat, Republican, and so on. We've allowed tribalism to overpower community in our society. I see the label on your forehead that tells me everything I need to know about you. Community has always been an inclusive idea. We take care of, support, and nurture each other because we're a community. Tribalism, on the other hand, is an exclusive construct. Join the tribe or go away. Communities are bound together by similarity. Tribes are separated by difference. And while this battle between community and tribe may not be playing out physically, it's certainly playing out culturally as evidenced by the blind exclusivity between political parties and the application of labels to define the other side. Labels that conveniently justify polarization, separation, isolation. Labels aren't always bad. They help to make us safe. A skull and crossbones on a bottle of insecticide or a biohazard warning on the door of a laboratory, or a lightning bolt striking the outline of a person on the gate of a power substation, all make people think twice before doing something that could cause injury. Why? Because labels simplify complex ideas or concepts. A label that says, this product contains 3,2-chloro-1,3-thiazole-5-methyl-1,3,5-nitramide may be intimidating because we can't pronounce it, much less understand it but a skull and crossbones on the bottle is pretty much a showstopper. The possibility of catching Ebola in a level 5 biocontainment lab is a great deterrent to irresponsible entry, but a biohazard sticker on the door stops most people in their tracks unless they're gowned in a Tyvek suit and have a very good reason to enter. Two things are at work here. On the one hand, the human brain processes images enormously faster than it processes text. So, if immediacy is the concern, go with the graphic. The second factor is distillation for the sake of simplification. A biochemist can talk for hours about the neurological effects of 3,2-chloro-1,3-thiazole, whatever it is, but I don't care. Skull and crossbones, though? I understand that. Drink this and ruin your day. The label works because it takes the complexity of a chemical's adverse effects and boils it down to a simple message. Don't even think about it. But now, let's talk about the use of labels to define people who are more complicated than any chemical formula. A label on a bottle of insecticide conveys a singular message. This kills insects, and it will kill you. It's a simple, defining image that contains everything you need to know, unless you're a biochemist. But applying a label to a person a label that captures a single characteristic of a person who, like most people, embodies hundreds if not thousands of them, is incomplete 
and unfair. It falls short. Do you want an example? Go do a little research on Phil Scott, the Republican governor of Vermont. You know, blue liberal Vermont of Bernie Sanders fame. Governor Scott is an avid hunter, but as governor, he banned bump stocks and high-capacity magazines on weapons. When not governing the state of Vermont, he's a world champion stock car racer with a huge blue-collar following. He's socially liberal. He's pro-choice and supports same-sex marriage, but he's fiscally conservative. He supported impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump, but I remind you, he's a Republican. Scott's a right-wing party member, yet he's admired and respected by Patrick Leahy, Bernie Sanders, and Peter Welch, Vermont's left-leaning Washington delegation. In fact, he was most recently elected with a 41% margin and enjoys approval ratings of about 60%. And by the way, Vermont has the highest vaccination rate in the world, somewhere north of 80%, and the lowest COVID infection rate because Scott trusts science and follows its guidance. So, how's that label working out? And for that matter, which one applies? He may be a member of the Republican Party, but does that truly capture who he is? I think not. Truthfully, most of us can only be defined by one label, human. Beyond that, the efficacy of the label falls short because it fails to capture who the person, the human, actually is. The biggest danger with labels, when applied to people, is that they try to tell us what a person is rather than the much more important and much more complicated who a person is. Labels are great for the what question. It's poison, don't drink it. Bad bugs inside, walk away. Danger of electrocution, don't ruin your day. We don't need to know the insecticide's scientific name or the compound Latin name of the pathogen or how much current lurks behind that chain-link fence waiting to cook us crispy. The label in this case says it all. It does its job. Not so with people. We are so much more than the labels that attempt to define us. We're a living pointillism, like George Surratt's A Sunday Afternoon on the Island of La Grande Jatte, the painting that Ferris Bueller and his friends were captivated by in the movie. A thousand thousand dots that, when viewed from afar, become a complex, rich picture of who we truly are. Get too close, all you see is the dots. But step back a bit, take in the whole picture, and a breathtaking human landscape appears. The United States is a grand, rich landscape of landscapes. Geographical, cultural, ethnic, historical, visual, regional, political, and of course personal. We the people can't be defined by something as categorically empty as a label. The grand paradox of the United States is that as astoundingly different as we all are, as hard as we work to define our individual uniqueness, at the critical level where such things matter, we fail to do so. Our uniqueness happens at the national level, and paradoxically, it happens because we're so vastly different. It's those differences that yield America's hybrid vigor, its ethical strength, its sense of national self. And yet, we fight it. I started this discussion with the bully pulpit. Such irony there is in the fact that the pulpit has largely been overrun by bullies. Cowards who hide behind the safe haven of social media and use its artificially large and loud reach to spread their message of 
division and anger and fear. Why do I say irony? Because well over 80% of the country's citizens, when asked, agree wholeheartedly on the things that matter. Fighting discrimination, access to education, equal rights for all, creation of jobs, safe working environments, elimination of poverty, all the things that should be held up as characteristics of the country we want to be, the country that we, the people, want to be part of. My book, The Nation We Knew, came about because I saw the potential in this country, the potential to actually be that shining city on the hill that Reverend John Winthrop first wrote about in a sermon aboard the Arbella in 1630, bound for the tiny town of Boston. I wanted to show what we could do as a nation if we pulled together. Imagine the future we want to leave for our children and their children. Set aside the petty, artificial, meaningless differences, the labels, that all too often get tossed out as irreconcilable and just do the damn work required to be what we want to be as a nation and as a people. I wanted to prove that if we spend as much time and energy working on ways to collaborate toward this goal, instead of looking for all the reasons, and they're not reasons, they're excuses, instead of looking for all the excuses why we can't, we could accomplish great things, things that future generations would be proud to inherit. Consider the words of Don Quixote. Some men see things as they are and ask why. Others dream things that never were and ask, why not? Well, I think it's time that we turned from what is and started thinking about what could be the very definition of leadership. But we're entangled in the relentless tractor beam of the status quo, that all-powerful force that leads to complacency and all too often the oblivion of irrelevance. Photojournalist James Noctway, who has made it his mission to photograph the atrocities that humans commit against one another and to ensure that they do not go unnoticed, begins his book Inferno with this line. A perfection of means, but a confusion of aims, is the misfortune of our time. Think about the perfection of means that we have at our disposal. We've landed vehicles on the surface of Mars, 239 million miles away with precision and marveled at the pictures and sounds that those vehicles regularly send back. We've created interfaces between the human brain and digital computers that allow a person to think a sentence and have the words magically appear on a screen. We've 3D printed fully functional organs and transplanted them into animals without ill effect. We've genetically engineered bacteria to produce insulin as a byproduct, saving millions of lives. And with enormous effort and skill, we've manipulated one of the fundamentals of life, ribonucleic acid, or RNA, to produce a life-saving vaccine in the face of a global pandemic in less than a year, a vaccine that has saved millions of lives and will continue to far into the future. Most of us can't begin to understand the enormous complexity of doing these things, Yet we've done them because we have a perfection of means. But now let's turn our attention to the confusion of aims that concludes Noctua's statement. In a bizarre refutation of science, great swaths of people refuse the vaccine, claiming, among other things, that it contains tracking technology, all while clinging to their mobile phones with a death grip, the ultimate tracking device. 
and by refusing the vaccine, they put those around them at risk and extend the danger of the virus immeasurably by consciously serving as an obstacle to herd immunity, an utterly selfish act that shows total disregard for others. If you don't believe in science, what the hell do you believe? Think about the essence of what science is. It never, ever purports to be right 100% of the time. But it does promise to always become more right, always, over time through rigorous testing, questioning, competition, and a desire to harness the power of human knowledge for the greater good. When science becomes complacent, it's no longer science. It's dogma, an answer without a question. Stanislaw Lech, an early 20th century Polish essayist, once wrote, When smashing monuments save the pedestals, they always come in handy. Over the last few years, dozens of U.S. Civil War figures have been pulled from their pedestals in protest. But fear not, other figures will take their place. But here's the truth. Science can't be pulled from its pedestal because science is the pedestal the pedestal upon which all human knowledge stands. It's the best thing we've got. And this is the point of Nachtwey's confusion of aims. Confusion is a lack of focus, and focus is a foundational element of leadership. Jim's message is on point. We have everything we need, all the will, the promise, the accumulated skill and knowledge required to literally change the world for the better. What we lack is focused leadership visionary leadership that points the way to and paints a picture of a new status quo that's better than the one we have today. Imagine how different the world would be if James Noctway's message read, an abundance of means and a singularity of aims is the promise of our time. Imagine what we could do if we focus more on what binds us and less on what divides us. E pluribus unum from the many, one. The nation we knew tells the story of a president who chooses to focus on being a leader of the people instead of being a follower of the party. She constantly challenges herself. That's right, she challenges herself to do the right thing, regardless of party dogma. She pulls from both sides of the political universe, not because it's politically expedient, but because she wants the best and brightest to solve the country's biggest problems. Party affiliation be damned. She assembles a non-traditional and highly effective cabinet because she can. What's funny to me, and it really is funny or perhaps very, very sad, is that the book is selling very well and it's getting very good reviews except from the people who are trashing it because, let's see if I can come up with some of the adjectives they've used, it's an unrealistic liberal fantasy. Really? First, a fairly large percentage of these reviews start with the following phrase, and I'm mystified by how they get through the review vetting process if there is one. They start out saying, I haven't read the book, but seriously? And of course, the second thing I want to say to the people who have taken the time to rabidly trash the book is, y'all do know that this is a novel, right? It's not a political science textbook, but hey, it sells more books. Methinks thou protesteth too much. Change is hard. We all know that. I've written a novel about change that has received lavish praise and attention, thank you very much, and a lot of negative comments, sorry to have weakened your grip on the status quo. 
My goal with this book has always been, and will always be, to catalyze a national conversation about change, about what could be, not what is. And it's starting to happen. But I want to go on record at this early stage with the following observation. Conversation implies two-way communications. It means that when the other person is talking, you listen. You genuinely listen with the intent of understanding. It doesn't mean that you change your mind. That's never been my goal. But it means that you strive to understand the other person's point of view. And when you're talking, don't do so with the intent of winning an argument or of proving the other person wrong, because they're not. Do it with the intent of being understood. Your goal is not to convince. Your goal is to share. And since sharing is one of the fundamental requirements of a close-knit, successful community, well, that's a step in the right direction. Thanks for listening.